Christians don't have a theology about the cross. We have a theology of the cross, meaning the cross is our theology. The cross is the center of everything it is that we believe and that we claim to be. You could say it this way, that the cross is the crux of our faith. And so if we want to think rightly about our faith and have a proper understanding of what it is that, that, that God has done for us and what it is that we believe and why we believe it, then it has to start with a good foundation of the cross and what took place and what it accomplished. And so we're going to talk about to that today. And I just want you to know ahead of time, it's going to be a little bit heavy, a little bit weighty, a little bit graphic at times, but um, I think it's important for us to come away today with a good and proper understanding. So let me do this. Let me pray for us as we get started this morning, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Uh, Jesus, would you help, help us to think rightly about what it is that you endured? Uh, Jesus, would you help me to speak honorably and appropriately about what is so vital and central to everything we believe and everything we claim to be? God, we ask that your presence be felt this morning and that you'd use this time together to challenge us, to change us, and to help us grow to be more like you and the people you've called us to be. Lord, we love you and pray this in your name. Amen. So um, as we have all six weeks, all previous five weeks, and then, of course, we're going to do it this week, we're going to look at one of the statements made by Christ from the cross as he was ushering his final few words and his final few moments here on earth. And so in Luke chapter 23, we get the sixth saying, Jesus made a total of seven, so next week is Easter, and, and we'll kind of hit the final one on Easter next week. So starting in verse 44, it says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, to set a foundation for today, what I'd really like to do is rather than just look at this moment, I'd like us to back up in history. As a matter of fact, from this point in history, I want us to back up about 800 years because that's where the crucifixion kind of gets its start. Um, and I think talking about this will help to set a foundation for each of us. So if we traveled back in time about 800 years before what we just read, about 800 B.C., um, we'll be in, in what's called the Assyrian Empire, uh, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, empires at the time in about 800 B.C. And it's the Assyrians who kind of start to come up with this idea for execution and torture uh, that eventually evolves into crucifixion. And what the Assyrians would do is sometimes they would impale a, a man on a pole, but most of the time they would tie a man to a pole, tie him up high, and then just leave him there. Obviously, you can understand what th that was to accomplish and, and, and how that worked. But, and even though that doesn't sound exactly like crucifixion and how we think about it, we can trace its history, and that's really where it gets its start with the Assyrians, who were some pretty brutal people. And what we see in about 500 B.C. is the Persians pick up this practice, but it's the Persians who add the crossbar. So when you think of a traditional cross, and you've got the vertical bar and the crossbar, it's the Persians who had the crossbar, but the Persians still tied people to these. 
to this cross. They didn't use nails. They would just tie someone up and then leave them there like the Assyrians would. It's with the Greeks in about 350 B.C. that we start to see the adoption of people being nailed to a cross. As a matter of fact, Alexander the Great, who's undoubtedly the most famous Greek, was very fond of crucifixion. But here's what's interesting. He never used it on his enemies. He only reserved crucifixion for his own soldiers and generals who he caught fleeing in battle. But it's with Alexander the Great and the Greeks that we see the nails start to come into play where people were nailed to the cross as opposed to just tied to it. And then, of course, in between 300 and 250 B.C. is with the rise of the Roman Empire. Um, we see the Romans take on this form and and start to utilize crucifixion within their society. Uh, now, crucifixion was pretty prevalent in the Roman Empire all the way till um, about 340 A.D. As a matter of fact, actually in year 337 A.D. is when the Emperor Constantine, uh, who was Emperor of Rome, uh, of the Roman Empire at the time, uh, became a Christian. And with his conversion, he outlawed crucifixion as a form of punishment in the Roman Empire. For the most part, crucifixion was done with, but it never really died. As a matter of fact, we have even instances in the 19th and 20th centuries where people were killed and hung on a cross. Now, most of that was concentrated, as rare as it is, to the Middle East, to Southwest Asia, places where it's illegal to be a Christian. And most of the time it was used as a form of mockery to say, well, your God died like this, so this is how you will die. But even into the 20th century, crucifixion has never completely gone away Um, but from about 250 to 350 b 250 bc to about 350 a.d it becomes highly prevalent in the roman society and here's what we know from history while the romans did not perfect excuse me while romans did not invent crucifixion they most certainly did perfect it and what we see is this constant evolution of what crucifixion was and what it meant in society what originally began as a form of capital punishment turned into a competition where they would see how much pain they could inflict it became a game to see how much torture someone could handle before death and and it became this competition and this game that soldiers and rulers would play just to see how barbaric they could make the torture what originally began as a punishment for the guilty transition to being a message to the innocent it was literally state-sponsored terror you and i understand how terror works today terrorists are not concerned with who they kill in their actions that's of no consequence to them what what is concerned what they are concerned with is who's impacted by the death they don't care who they kill but thereafter who they can impact by the death Who is the one who's going to receive the message that they send by killing others? And within the Roman government and society, crucifixion became that message. It was no longer about punishing guilty people as much as it was sending a sign to the innocent. We'll talk about the pieces and parts of a cross here in a little bit, but there's two major pieces and parts of a cross that we're we're familiar with. Um, You have the vertical beam, which we call the stipe, and you have the crossbar, the horizontal beam, which we call the patabulum. The stipe, think about this, the patabulum weighed between 100 and 150 pounds of solid, roughly hewn timber. Add a, man's, a full-grown man's weight to that. 
then start talking about three to five hundred pounds of solid timber for the stipe. If you start adding this up, it becomes so heavy, it would be impossible for a cross to be laid on the ground, a man nailed to it, and then to raise it up, as we oftentimes see maybe in the movies or in pictures. It was, it was impossible. It was far too heavy, aside from the fa- fact that it's top-heavy, and so it would, it would be so easy to fall over. So these stipes, these vertical beams, were permanently fixed in the ground at all times. It was only the patabulum, that crossbar, that would be raised um, up onto the stipe, up onto that horizontal, or that uh, vertical bar. And so you got to think about this. These stipes were permanently fixed into the ground, always there, blood-stained from past crucifixions, and left out for people to see at all times. So that when you left the city gates, you saw them sitting there. So that as you traveled down along Roman highways and roads, you saw these stipes almost as though they were light posts leading your way black with dried blood as a reminder of what happens to those who cross the line. This was state-sponsored terror. Although the Romans didn't invent it, they most certainly perfected it. And they were constantly creating new ways to make it worse and more painful. Now, if, if what we said at the beginning was true, that, that the cross is the crux of what we believe and of who we are, then we have a problem. Because for you and I, there's a disconnect between what we see in our mind, what may be on a picture or painting hung in our house, the image we wear around our neck. There's a disconnect between what we see and think of when we think of the cross versus what it actually was like. There's this gap between what we think and what reality was. And if the cross is really that important to our faith, I think it's important for us to do the best we can to close that gap, to get a more accurate picture of what a crucifixion and what the scene would have been like, because there's this disconnect. And that's a problem if we really mean it when we say that we don't have a theology about the cross. We have a theology of the cross. The cross is the centerpiece of our understanding of who God is. You see, there's a disconnect because we don't understand the barbaric nature and the disgusting nature of a cross. There's a well-known kind of philosopher, orator, um, uh, Roman uh, politician. His name was Cicero. And Cicero uh, was most famous for his speeches. And that's kind of what he did as a profession. And so he would deliver speeches before the Roman Senate, before Caesar himself, before the people of Rome. Um, Just kind of like our president does with State of the Unions is what Cicero was for the Roman Empire uh, in delivering messages because he was so skilled at speaking. And we have records of many of his speeches. And one of his speeches, he actually delivers to the Senate and to Caesar about what is fitting and unfitting for Roman citizens, almost like an ethics lesson about how people should and shouldn't behave. And a good portion of his speech that day was devoted to crucifixion. And Cicero said this to Caesar, It is unfit for any Roman citizen or any free man to even speak of the cross. It should never come off of their lips. Cicero felt that it was so barbaric so disgusting 
that no Roman citizen or free man should ever even let the name cross or crucifixion escape from their lips. It wasn't even fit to say it. And so they began creating new words to talk about it, like they would call it the cursed tree or the unlucky tree or the cursed wood because it was so disgusting and barbaric. People who thought highly of themselves thought it shouldn't even come off of, out of their mouth. The Romans had to invent a new word to describe what took place on a cross, the barbaric, disgusting, painful nature of what took place. Excruciatus is the word that they created. In Latin, excruciatus. You can tell we get our word excruciating from it. In Latin, the, that word literally just means out of the cross or from the cross. Just to describe what took place at these places. We, we have a hard time understanding what the true barbaric nature of a crucifixion was like. You and I have a hard time because we've never seen the shame and pain associated with a cross. We've never seen it. But the men, live, men and women living in the first century were all too familiar with it. I'm sure many of you have heard of Spartacus. Maybe you don't know a lot about him, or maybe you've seen a, a cheesy Hollywood movie, but um, you've at least heard the name Spartacus. Um, Spartacus was a slave who was sold into a gladiator school. And as we can all understand and know, that um, gladiators were, for all intents and purposes, born and bred to die. If you didn't die in one battle, in one arena, it was just a matter of time until you did. And so Spartacus, this slave, sold into a gladiator school, escaped in about 70 B.C. And he fled into the countryside and began developing his own army of peasants and farmers and other slaves, and then began to threaten to sack Rome. At first, the Romans didn't take him very seriously because it was just an army of peasants and farmers and slaves. But they quickly started taking them seriously because somewhere between 60 and 100,000 dead trained Roman soldiers later, they finally had to take him seriously and do something about it. So they sent uh, their largest army and were able to defeat Spartacus and his group. Uh, and they were able to capture about 6,000 of Spartacus's soldiers and followers. And in 70 B.C., they crucified all 6,000 over a 120-mile stretch of road. That's one every 100 feet for 120 miles. You and I forget what this may have been like, but these people didn't. Uh, Jesus was born somewhere between 4 and 6 B.C., which sounds strange since we operate our calendar off him that he wasn't born in zero, but he wasn't, and that's just because we've made some adjustments to, to counting uh, and, and calculating those things. So Jesus was born between about 4 and 6 B.C., somewhere in that time frame. And when he was born, there was a man in control of that region called Herod. We call him Herod the Great. And Herod heard that this king had been born and ordered him to be killed and we know the story that Herod wasn't successful uh, a number of years later Herod the Great dies and his big territory is divided up to three of his sons he had a lot of sons and, and daughters but three of them got to be rulers and um, 
one of them was named Herod Archelaus, and he accepted a portion of his dad's reign that included the area of Jerusalem. And so when Herod Archelaus gained power, he gave himself the title King of the Jews. Well, obviously, the Jews in Jerusalem weren't too happy about that, didn't like it, and so they began to to riot, and they began to petition to Rome to get rid of this guy. And so Herod Archelaus, just to show his power and just to prove a point, crucified almost 3,000 Jewish leaders in about 4 A.D. That would have put Jesus at about 4 to 10 years old. You and I have this disconnect because we've never seen it, but, but these men, they saw it firsthand. Now, that act didn't bode well for Herod, and eventually uh, the Roman government soon after got rid of Herod Archelaus, and instead, because they didn't want the, the family, this crazy family, to keep reigning, they instead put in a governorship or a, pro, um, a praetorium uh, within that region, and that's why um, Jesus will eventually go to trial before the governor Pilate, um, because Pilate took over for Herod after the, the Romans got rid of him. And so Jesus, being a young boy, witnesses almost 3,000 uh, faith leaders from his family's faith executed, crucified, just to prove a point, just to show people you don't cross the line. You don't challenge those in authority or this is what happens to you. Jesus knew full well what was coming in his future. See, there's this disconnect because you and I have never seen, but we've also never smelt or tasted the death in the air. So at different points in history, um, we get different pictures of crucifixion. And depending on when you're looking, um, it took anywhere from a couple days to a couple hours for a man to die on a cross. Uh, initially, it took a lot longer, um, but there started to be problems with family members who would come in the middle of the night, try to get their family members down off the cross, things like that. So eventually the Romans created a law that a Roman soldier had to be assigned to every cross and every criminal hanging, and they could not leave their post until the criminal was confirmed dead. Well, you can imagine the Roman soldier, that he doesn't want to wait three days for this criminal to die. So they created new ways to make sure a criminal died faster. Um, but once the criminal was confirmed dead, the soldier was free to go. And he would leave and the body would stay. Now, there's a few things that would happen. Um, sometimes a family member of the criminal if they got permission, could come take the body down and give it a proper burial. Uh, but what, what happened most of the time is you have to understand that the, the cross was reserved for the most vilest of criminals and for slaves. Roman citizens could be crucified, but they usually weren't. Because as a Roman citizen, you had certain rights you could appeal um, and, and you could even ask for different punishments. And certainly, the Romans had a lot of ways to execute people. Um, crucifixion was as much about torture as it was death. And so a Roman citizen would never choose it. And so usually you have the vilest of criminals and the poorest of poor. And there are no family, or there's no family who has enough money to pay for a proper burial. So the bodies would hang on a cross until the Romans got tired of seeing it and smelling it. And then they'd take them down and put them in a mass grave. We have historical reports 
of bodies hanging up for no, up to nine days on a cross. We've never seen or smelt or tasted the death in the air. The, the torture and the punishment that the criminals endured even before they got to the cross was so severe that it wasn't just blood falling to the ground. But there were body parts and flesh and organs. There were no janitors to clean those up. They were just left. Anybody watch the Discovery Channel, Animal Planet? I love Animal Planet. I'm kind of obsessed. I watch weird shows. When an Af- when a, uh, in the African safari, when a, when a lion kills a gazelle, what quickly shows up? What starts circling in the air? Vultures. Scavengers start showing up. You don't have to teach them to do it. They just know. They're looking for a free meal. And we've seen paintings. We've seen pictures of a crucifixion. I doubt any of our paintings show the vultures and the scavengers because they hung around these places all the time because it was a free meal. It wasn't uncommon for the vultures to start their work long before the criminal was dead. Did anyone ever have to teach a fly where to find your dog's mess in the backyard? No. These places were infested with bugs. As soon as the criminal went up, bugs began burrowing themselves in his wounds. It was like a cloud of insects and bugs all around. Now imagine taking your family on a journey. You're going to specifically choose your travel routes so you can avoid these places. You don't want your children seeing this. You don't want your children smelling this. You don't want your children exposed to the bugs and the scavengers that were all around. These places were disgusting. These places were brutal. So we enter into the final week of Jesus' life. This Sunday is what we call Palm Sunday in the Christian world. And it celebrates this final week of Jesus' life as we celebrate uh, you know, leading up to Easter and, and our, on our week leading up to Easter. In the week leading up to Jesus' final death, he, be, he walks into the city of Jerusalem. And because there's so many people who have seen Jesus do miracles and have heard His teachings and have been blessed by His ministry, they start waving palm branches at Him as He's riding into Jerusalem. They begin laying palm branches and their own coats down on the, down on the road so that even the donkey He rides doesn't have to touch the ground. And, and they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're waving their palm branches. And that's why we call it Palm Sunday today as we celebrate this final week of the Passion Week of Jesus's life. And so Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he spends the remaining time in the city doing what he has always done. He's teaching, he's comforting, he's doing miracles, he's healing people of diseases, doing what he's been doing for several years now. But Jesus had been warning his disciples for several years, when we get to Jerusalem, that'll be the end. When we get to the Jerusalem, that's when I'll be handed over and that's when I'll be killed. Now, the disciples always assumed Jesus was talking metaphorically. Like, how could a king go through these things? How could a king endure such terrible things? How can a king be a king over a kingdom 
if he's dead. So every time Jesus would tell them what was coming, they assumed he was being metaphorical, trying to trying to teach them something special or deeper. They didn't realize how literal he was being. And so Jesus is performing his ministry on the last night of his life. He has his final supper, his final meal with his disciples. Um, still trying to prepare them for what's to come and they don't see it coming. When they finish their meal, Jesus leads them out of the city gates of Jerusalem to a place called the Mount of Olives. It's just right outside of the city gates. And at the bottom of it is something called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus leads his disciples there. And he sits them down. And, and Jesus, the Bible tells us that, begins to talk to his disciples. And Jesus says this, My heart is sorrowful even to the point of death. And with that, he asks them to pray for him. And he turns around and he walks off. And he goes not too far, a few steps, before he drops on his face and begins praying. Now Luke, who we also know is a medical doctor, describes what happens next. And he says that Jesus starts sweating drops of blood. Anybody ever had a stress headache? Everybody, anybody get them? I don't get stress headaches. I get it in my lower back. Like when I'm really stressed, it's my lower back that really tightens up and hurts. Maybe it's your shoulders. Maybe it's your head, whatever it is. Um, that when you experience that, you're experiencing a physical response to stress. Well, doctors say that at times under great emotional duress, the pressure inside your body can become so severe and so great that your capillaries literally begin to burst and to mix into your sweat glands. And you literally begin bleeding drops or sweating drops of blood. It's a medical condition called hematidrosis. And Luke, a medical doctor, is watching Jesus as he falls on his face and begins praying under the weight and the pressure of what he knows is coming because he's seen it since he was a child. He's watched religious leaders that his parents loved dearly murdered at the hands of jealous men. He knows what's coming. He's heard the screams. And under the intense weight and pressure and stress, his capillaries begin to burst. After praying and discussing with his disciples several times through several, several exchanges, Jesus gets up, tells his disciples it's time to go. They had fallen asleep. He said, you can sleep later. But, but my hour has now come. And with that come Roman soldiers and religious leaders into the garden. And at that point, Jesus' disciples get scared and they flee. And Jesus is left, blood-stained clothes, all alone, like a sheep being led to the slaughter as he's arrested and is now going to begin five trials throughout the city of Jerusalem. In the middle of the night, they drag Jesus before the religious council, where they begin to question him. Now, what the Jewish leaders understand is that they can condemn him, but they can't execute him. That has to come with Roman approval. The Jewish leaders can only go so far, and then the Romans have to give final authority. So part of these early morning, late, middle-of-the-night trials is they're trying to put a case together of what they're going to do in the morning when they take Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate. So they begin paying and bribing people to prepare them to give testimony against Jesus. And, and we learn that even their paid, bribed testimonies 
can't agree, that, that they keep contradicting one another. The religious leaders get fed up and the chief priest walks up to Jesus and asks him, are you the son of God? And Jesus confirms it's true. And so they charge him with blasphemy, which according to Jewish law is punishable by death. But they're going to wait for trial before the Roman governor in the morning because he's, only, he's the only one who can give the final stamp of approval for an execution. So they have a lot of time to waste. They got a lot of time till morning until Pilate's awake and ready for trial. So to amuse themselves, to take up time, to bypass the time, the religious leaders decide to play a game. And so they blindfold Jesus and begin punching him in their face with their large insignia rings and start playing a game. Come on, Jesus, guess who was it that hit you that time? Prophesy, Jesus, whose ring was it that time? They put a crown of thorns on his head. It would have looked a lot like this. And they take rods and they begin beating the crown into his skull. They're pulling out handfuls, fistfuls of his beard, spitting on him and mocking him and punching him just to play a game, just to kill time until morning comes. Morning comes and Jesus is drugged to the praetorium before Pilate. Pilate begins to question Jesus and try to figure out what it is that's going on. The Jews have found him guilty of blasphemy because he claimed to be the son of God. But Pilate, he doesn't care. He doesn't care if Jesus claims to be God. That means nothing to him. That's no threat to him. He's not a religious man. So they know that they can't bring that charge against him. So when they bring Jesus before Pilate, they accuse him of claiming to be a king and that his kingship is a threat to Roman rule. So Pilate questions him. But in the end, Pilate says, this man's not guilty. There's nothing I can do with him. But Pilate thinks he has a way out. You see, Herod the Great had died. He divided up his kingdom into three parts. We talked about Herod Archelaus already. Another one of those men, his sons that he gave a portion of reign to was Herod Antipas. And Herod's district was in the area where Jesus grew up. And so Pilate sends Jesus uh, to, to Herod to decide what to do. Herod's excited. He's heard a lot about Jesus, never seen him before, and actually quite enjoys the opportunity to question and talk to him and begins making fun of Jesus a little bit. But in the end, comes out to the, the leaders in the crowd and says, this man's done nothing wrong. I find only innocence in him. And then he basically says to Pilate, he may have grown up in my jurisdiction, but he's in yours now, so he's your problem. So they drag Jesus back to Pilate once again. And Pilate is begging Jesus to say something so that he can let Jesus go. Pilate does not want to crucify Christ. As a matter of fact, even Pilate's own wife comes out and begs her husband, have nothing to do with this man, he's innocent. Pilate questions Jesus over and over. Begging Jesus, say something so that I can let you go. In our society, you are innocent until proven guilty. In Roman society, you are guilty until you can prove yourself to be innocent. And so the longer that Jesus remained silent, his silence was the loudest thing he could have said. Pilate's begging him, just say something so I can let you go. 
and Jesus won't do it. Eventually, Pilate realizes he has a problem. The religious leaders are starting to stir up a riot because they're so tired of this process. They, they're afraid that Jesus is going to be set free. And so they threaten Pilate with a riot. Now, Pilate's already in trouble with the Roman government because some other riots have already happened under his watch. And the Roman government's about tired of Pilate. And he understands if another riot happens, it's his head on the chopping block. And so in order to avoid a riot, he says, fine, I'll let you have this man. You can crucify him. And Pilate, and we learn in Matthew chapter 27, literally brings a bowl of water out before the crowd and the rulers and the soldiers and washes his hands and says, you just need to know my hands will be clean of this man's blood. And the crowd yells out, let his blood be on our on, on, on us and on our children. And with that, they drag Jesus away to be scourged or flogged. Now, the Bible says virtually nothing about Jesus's flogging or scourging, but we know a lot about it from history. They would strip a man naked and they would tie his hands up high on a post like this. Some of these pictures may be a little blurry, um, but maybe they'll give you some perspective. These pictures come from the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, who did a study on ancient crucifixions and floggings and talking about the medical aspects of what took place in these events. And so as Jesus would have been tied up like this, naked before a large crowd, screaming and chanting and cheering, two Roman soldiers would gather on either side with what we call a cat of nine tails. It was actually a pretty short whip of nine leather strands where bone and rock and metal balls were tied all the way down the leather straps to serve as a meat tenderizer every time they struck the individual's body. And on the end of each of these straps were pieces of glass and metal hooks. And the soldiers, one at a time, right side, left side, right side, would take turns up to 39 times. The legal limit, according to Jewish law, was 40. But for particular reasons, they would only give 39. This wasn't like a whipping that you and I think about. These weren't cuts and scrapes and scratches and burns and bruises. These were life-threatening injuries. These hooks would go up to an inch deep. When they would throw the cat of nine tails, it would stick and the soldiers would just tug it a little bit with one hand to make sure that the hooks sank in deep. And then with two hands, they'd grab and rip. And we have historical records of men's ribs being ripped out of their own, ca their own chest cavities. These weren't cuts from a knife. These exposed internal organs. The blood loss was catastrophic. The soldiers would play games, have contests. We know of one of their more famous contests is they would see if who would be the most accurate if one of them could get a hook caught in the corner of a mouth so that they could take it all the way to the ear. And after 39, Jesus would have been experiencing complete circulatory shock. And so they take him down and they throw him to the ground. And they tie 
his own paddleboom or crossbar over his shoulders to be carried almost a mile to the place of his execution. A crossbar weighing between 100 and 150 pounds. There were several types of crosses used. Um, Most of us think about the cross on the far right, which is what we call a Latin cross. The reason we call it a Latin cross is it was mostly used on the Italian peninsula and mostly used centuries after Christ. More likely, Christ would have been crucified on a cross that looked like this T. We call it a low tau cross. It wasn't going to be very tall at all. As a matter of fact, usually uh, the man's feet would just be barely off the ground. Jesus was carry, uh, began to carry this 150-pound piece of roughly hewn timber, but because of being up all night, no food, no water, no sleep, constant beatings. His eyes were probably sh- swollen shut at this point. Massive blood loss and circulatory shock. Jesus can't make it. And he eventually collapses. And with his collapse, that 150 pounds lands straight on his back and pressured on his chest. The Journal of American Medical Association, who wrote this report, estimated that that the amount of force experienced when Jesus fell would have been equivalent to being in a head-on collision at 40 miles an hour with no seatbelt, no airbags, where your chest hits the steering wheel. At this point, he undoubtedly has heart contusions. So they have to find somebody else to carry the crossbar. And they carry the crossbar to the side of the execution, and they throw Jesus down. There, a man who had spent most of his life as a carpenter, who had nailed thousands of nails into wood himself. He himself is nailed to his own piece of wood with spikes between five and seven inches driven right through the central nervous highway in your arm uh, that controls all the nerves in your hand right into the wrist. A lot of times we, we, we may see images about in the palm, but we know just from anatomy that, that the palm could never support a man's weight aside from the fact that the Greek word uh, literally encompasses everything about the lower arm. So, so we, you, a, lot, a lot of times you could translate it hand, but it can, mean, um, the, it can even mean fingers, it can mean the palm, it can mean the wrist. And so, so the nails would have been driven right through his wrists. And upon nailing him to the crossbar, four soldiers on a small step stool would have lifted him up and placed the crossbar at the top of this vertical beam on top of the stipe. And from there, they would have crossed his feet over and they would have nailed his feet to the crossbar. Now, for most individuals on a cross, they eventually died from asphyxiation, meaning they couldn't breathe any longer. And this position with all the weight, if you go back to the previous one, with all the weight on your wrists, with your lungs collapsed, you can't breathe. And so in order to breathe, you have to push yourself up on your feet and pull with your wrists in order to gain air so that you can breathe. Eventually, men would grow too tired and too weak to pull themselves up anymore, and they'd quit breathing. Depending on the severity of the flogging would depend on how long they would last on a cross, but usually about hour four, 
the soldiers were ready to go home and they'd take a club and they would break the shin bones of the man on the cross so he couldn't push himself up with his feet anymore. And within minutes, he'd asphyxiate. This is how most men died. Naked. There wouldn't have been a covering on him. In the public eye. Scorned, mocked, beaten. The Bible says that that what Jesus endured was so severe that he was marred beyond human likeness. Meaning it wasn't just hard to tell if it was Jesus or another man, but it would have been hard to tell even what the lump of flesh you saw was. Most men died from asphyxiation, but I don't think Jesus did. And here's why. We read this earlier in Luke 23. It said that Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Right after Jesus cried out, he bowed his head and he died. And the soldier then took a spear and stuck it into his side to ensure that he was dead, which was common practice that all soldiers would do. And the Bible says that what came out? Blood mixed with water. After the circulatory shock and the heart contusions and all that he had endured, I think Jesus could feel his heart sacs rupturing and knew it was the end. And with one final breath, cried out and died. Jesus literally and figuratively died of a broken heart. And we call this what? Our good news. We call this our good news. Why would we say that? Here's why. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Romans chapter 4. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to to the scriptures in Second Corinthians chapter five, or excuse me, First Peter chapter three. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Second Corinthians chapter five. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness. Of God, That famous uh, theologian that we talked about earlier, Martin Luther, he called this verse the great exchange. The great exchange of human history. Because it was Jesus' righteousness that was exchanged for our sinfulness. Because on the cross, Jesus reversed 
what we're all guilty of. And that is we've all exchanged ourselves for God. We've all tried to make ourselves God to be the own kings and rulers of our lives, to declare that we're the ones that are worthy of worship and praise by the way we live our lives. But Jesus exchanged himself for us. It was on the cross that he took what we deserved. It was on the cross that he took the punishment that our sins demanded, that our our idolatry of replacing ourselves with God demanded. And it's not just us, but the Bible calls this good news. The word gospel in its original language literally just means the good news. And Christ endured it all unjustly for you and I, always in control, and chose to be obedient to death, as the Bible says, even death on a cross. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for our time together. And we recognize the weight of what you endured. The weight of what you went through on our behalf. And God, honestly, thank you is not even a, an adequate response. And so, because you gave it all, Jesus, we want to give all to you. We want to make you the most in our life. Make you supreme. We want you to guide us to truly be not just our Savior, but our Lord. And would you continue to move in our hearts this morning? I want you to keep your eyes closed, if you would, for a moment. The topic at hand today is is graphic and it's weighty. It's a lot. To be honest, the words today don't do justice to what Jesus endured. It's one thing for any man to have to endure it. How much more so an innocent one? But Jesus wasn't just an innocent man. Jesus was God. So he left his throne in heaven to come here to endure that for us. He went from receiving ultimate glory and honor to receiving man's most dreadful and barbaric shame and torture because of of love. And Jesus gave it all for us so that we could give Him our all. My challenge and my encouragement to you this morning is to give Him your all. Not just an hour on a Sunday, to give Him all that you are, all the time. To live a life that brings Him honor, that honors the sacrifice He made for you.
Jesus, thank you for our time together. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to move, continue to speak. Continue to move in our hearts.